and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about human rights in the Middle East. We discuss the latest cycle of violence between Israel and Palestine and what the United States can do or not to help improve human rights and peace across the region. My guest today is Sarah Lee Whitson, the executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. And previously, she was the executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division, working in 19 countries across the region. Sarah, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me, Nekar. Thank you for joining me. Um, I first want to ask you about this latest cycle of violence and conflict that keeps escalating, it seems, in uh, Israel and Palestine. Tell us how it started and developed into what we're seeing today. Well, you know, any place you identify as the last trigger point or the latest is is rarely an adequate answer because it never really just starts there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most immediate trigger were the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, a neighborhood of East Jerusalem, um, that the Israeli government had ordered, uh, claiming that the homes uh, Palestinians had been living in were actually ones taken uh, from Jewish residents uh, before the establishment of the State of Israel. And the reason why this is so problematic, or one of the many reasons why it's so problematic, uh, first of all, is because these are Palestinians who lost their homes uh, from others uh, to uh, uh, Jewish immigrants who had come in and forced them from their houses uh, in Jerusalem, but they have no claims to. Uh, Israeli law only allows Jews to claim uh, homes. Um, And second of all, it's part of a much larger project of systematically and deliberately Judaizing uh, uh, Jerusalem, particularly East Jerusalem, where there are uh, Palestinian neighborhoods and driving them out. Um, This is the very clearly stated policy of the Israeli government, of the Jerusalem municipality, uh, and has been underway for the past several decades. Mm -hmm. And um, as you were saying, it's always just difficult to talk about this one instant of um, of so- the cycle of violence or the, the escalation. But give us a little bit of the background of this situation that you're explaining in Sheikh Jarrah and East Jerusalem, but it's beyond that. It's in the West Bank, it's in Gaza. The situation that basically is a backdrop of this, the position that the Palestinians are in, that leads to these erupting cycles of violence again and again. Well, there has been a uh, more than 50-year-long military occupation of the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, uh, which has been accompanied by a systematic expansion of Israeli settlements uh, or colonies uh, uh, throughout the West Bank and East Jerusalem. They had some in Gaza. They pulled them back, but they continue to control the territory. Um, Basically, the very clear intent and practice has been uh, to remove Palestinians uh, from uh, areas, parts of uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, where they live, uh, and to settle Jewish communities, Jewish-only communities in these areas. And that's why you've seen this expansion of settlements uh, throughout uh, uh, Jerusalem and um, the West Bank. 
It is, again, a very clearly stated policy of the government to Judaize uh, uh, large areas of the West Bank. And of course, there have been very open proposals to annex uh, many parts of the West Bank, uh, to annex those areas from which Palestinians have been driven out uh, and uh, Jewish residents have settled, um, and to bring them more formally uh, under uh, Israeli authority as opposed to the secondary authority that uh, uh, Israeli settlements um, have. Um, what uh, Human Rights Watch has described this as, um, what Israeli human rights organizations, what Palestinian rights organizations have described this as, is a very deliberate system of apartheid, um, which is an intent to dominate and persecute uh, a, a minority population in the country, in this case, uh, Palestinians, uh, to drive them out of that land, uh, premised on the notion of a Jewish supremacy, uh, with laws that privilege Jews, with a system and a government that privileges Jews and discriminates and oppresses Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And how do you see the role of the United States? Now, that's a big discussion, but let's talk about the response of the current administration to this very ongoing cycle. How do you assess and see this? Well, the Biden administration is trying to rewind time, which of course is not possible, and that's why it's failing. Uh, it very much hoped that it could move uh, its policy approach uh, to Israel-Palestine back to pre-Trump days, uh, to keep talking about the pretend peace process, to keep talking about a, uh, a pretend two-state solution, but generally to do nothing other than to allow this status quo uh, of apartheid, uh, of settlements, uh, of uh, 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 forced displacement uh, to continue um, without having to do really anything much, without having to expend any political capital uh, to tackling the problem, and most significantly to continue uh, U.S. military support, unconditional U.S. military support, $3.8 billion worth of military support to Israel annually. Uh, it was just very much hoping that things would remain quiet with no change. Uh, clearly that's exploded in their faces. Uh, and the reason it's exploding is because the whole world knows there is no peace process, there is no two-state solution, but there is apartheid, there is ethnic cleansing, there is forced displacement, and there is the violent and very ugly rule of Palestinians uh, under Israeli control. Mm. And, um, you know, you focus, your work is focused on human rights and you work on different countries in the region, U.S. allies and U.S. foes. And that's usually where, where the main challenges, how the United States is approaching issues related to countries that are considered partners or allies and how the approach is when it comes to countries that are not. And this administration, the Biden administration, has said that they want to have a human rights first policy. What do you see as an ideal human rights first policy? First of all, do you think that what this administration is pursuing is really a human rights first policy when it comes to the region? And how would that ideal uh, policy as far as human rights towards the Middle East look like to you? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I, I don't think it's any secret that the United States policy uh, towards the Middle East is not a human rights first policy. Uh, it's a dictator's first policy. Uh, it is a policy that has for many decades uh, and today under the Biden administration uh, provides military, political and economic support uh, to the 
most abusive authoritarian and apartheid governments in the world, uh, who happen right now to be concentrated in the Middle East uh, and North Africa. The United States provides political backing and military support uh, to Israel, to Egypt, to Jordan, um, but also uh, through its military sales and, very importantly, the political protection, the political support that represents to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain. The message of American political and military support to these abusive, unrepresentative governments in the region is that we stand with you. America stands with these unelected, unaccountable, abusive governments and the United States defends them from international scrutiny, from international opprobrium, from international sanction. That's the role the United States is playing in the region. That's where its commitments, its stated commitments to human rights embarrassingly fall away. In terms of what a better US policy would look like uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, um, I think our goals uh, uh, should be very humble in recognition of the extremely diminished credibility and standing that the United States has. Um, and really just uh, the bare minimum of what we're looking for is for the United States to end its harm, stop harming the people of the Middle East, stop supporting their abusive tyrants, stop arming uh, those who are killing and oppressing them, stop defending them in international fora like the UN Security Council. You know, we're not looking for the United States to fix everything that's wrong in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. The U.S. neither has the ability nor the credibility to do that. The U.S. can't fix Syria. Uh, it can't promote a, a, a democracy as in actively <clears throat> changing governments to promote democracy. It can stop harming the people of the region through this military support on the one hand and through these overbroad countrywide sanctions uh, that have been disastrous for the people of Iran uh, and the people of Syria, just to name two countries in the world, in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And there's also this issue of, you mean the big elephant in the room, the endless wars that and the militarism, the intervention that the United States has been engaging in or engaged in in the past two decades or so in the region. Talk about how that U.S. military intervention in the region has impacted human rights in various countries, be it foes or um, allies across the region. Well, U.S. military interventionism is classically understood as boots on the ground, you know, actively fighting wars the way the United States uh, has been fighting uh, in Afghanistan for several decades now and the way the United States has been fighting off and on in Iraq for several decades now. Um, it's a very welcome development that there's a popular shift both among the general public and the Washington establishment and Congress to end these so-called endless wars, uh, to withdraw our forces from Afghanistan, uh, to withdraw our forces from Iraq, which even the Biden administration has promised to do, although it's refused to give a timetable. Um, the impact of America's war in Iraq, if we just look at one country, uh, has been catastrophic. And really, this starts back from 1991 during the first Gulf War, um, uh, which was the beginning of America really getting its tentacles, its military tentacles, uh, into Iraq, followed by a decade of sanctions, followed by another disastrous, catastrophic war that has really uh, turned Iraq into a failed state. 
um, what it remains today, completely defanged and neutered, uh, involved in cannibalistic infighting, uh, a, a broken country that has not yet emerged uh, as a unified whole, particularly since America's invasion uh, uh, in 2003. Um, but I think it's very important that we also recognize that America's endless wars are not only reflected with these boots on the ground, they are also reflected and are part and parcel of America's military support to abusive governments in the region, America's troops in numerous countries in the Middle East, more troops in the Middle East than any other country in the world, America's political support uh, of uh, these governments in the region, um, which uh, are really premised on maintaining American domination and control of what happens in the Middle East. It's been a disastrous strategy for the people of the region in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, you talked about um, the conversation in Washington. We see a slow change in the foreign policy conversation in the D.C. area, slow but increasing from someone like Bernie Sanders bringing some of these ideas to a national stage in the mainstream conversation to members of Congress. We see a dozen members of Congress coming out with very strong statements, for example, in this latest cycle of violence between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we see this change reflected in the media and the human rights community, NGOs. Talk about this change in the conversation, how it's happening and um how you basically, if you welcome uh, sort of this transformation of the conversation? Um, sure. I think there is a change. There is a shift. It's yet to really translate in policy. Mm. Um, but that's where change usually starts. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a very clear shift uh, on all fronts, among the public, among the U.S. government, uh, among the foreign policy intelligentsia and community, for example, on the need to end America's endless wars. And that's why the U.S. is finally ending its war in Afghanistan. And that's why the U.S. has promised to finally remove its remaining troops from Iraq. Uh, I think Americans get that piece of it. The new piece that's evolving is an understanding of America's support uh, the, and, and the consequences of that support, not just uh, for Egypt and Saudi Arabia, um, but also for Israel. And, and Israel has always been um, the, 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 the red line in American politics um, where people who understood um, why it was so problematic for the United States to support Israel would either never speak out uh, about it because it would be so disastrous for their own careers um, or would attempt to justify it and defend it. That's the leg that's now crumbling. And it's crumbling for a number of reasons. One is that U.S. support for Israel is just indefensible in the face of the facts that we see every day of Israeli apartheid, Israeli aggression, Israeli land theft, Israeli murder of Palestinian children. The, the facts are just too overwhelming. Um, and so it's intellectually really, really impossible to justify it. Um, the second is an expanded space for political progressives who see the intersection of the oppression of black and brown people in America and the oppression of Palestinians uh, in uh, Israel uh, and the supremacist ideology that is the reason why Palestinians are being oppressed 
uh, in Palestine and Israel, which is very uh, much related to and, and parallel to the white supremacist philosophy um, that is the premise behind the uh, 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 extraordinary uh, discrimination and harm that African Americans in particular suffer uh, by U.S. policing, for example. And we have new members of Congress who see these connections and su see these links and are speaking out vocally. I think the third piece of it is that there has been diversification in U.S. foreign policy circles, such that the faces we see with positions and voices in the American foreign policy establishment, in the think tanks, in human rights organizations, in academia, in journalism, are increasingly uh, uh, black and brown, Arab and Muslim. And so we're seeing an evolution of the thinking and the perspective um, that comes from having experienced what it's like to be oppressed and discriminated against um, because of your national background, your racial background, your religious background. That is influencing and seeping into the conversation uh, in foreign policy circles, just as it has had on numerous conversations in the domestic front. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that the U.S. has, of course, limited ability and influence to sort of impact or help improve human rights in the region. Talk about how the U.S. can positively um, uh, support civil society and activism across the region in countries that are friends and fullers of the United States and also successfully hold human rights abusers accountable. Well, I think, again, the very, very first priority is for the U.S. to stop harming the people of the region. Mm -hmm. No, don't, don't go out of your way to do anything extra. No need for extra projects on judicial training and civil society training. Those are all well and good. Um, but nothing will matter so long as the United States continues to provide military and political support to the tyrants of the region who are quashing their civil societies, uh, quashing any democratic change, quashing free speech, uh, quashing free assembly, uh, and, and you know, subjecting uh, uh, the people of the region to incredible harm. That's got to be the first thing that stops. If the U.S. does nothing more than just turns off that tap of military support, that will be transformative to opening up civil society space in the region. I think the second thing that you mentioned, which can be a powerful tool, um, which exists, is the power to individually sanction abusive actors in the region. Now, clearly, uh, under the col current political regime in the United States, uh, the sanctioning of the worst abusers will be limited. And that's why the United States, for example, sanctioned Mohammed bin Salman's underlings for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, but didn't sanction him himself. Mm -hmm. So there are clearly political limits in who they'll go after. But nevertheless, uh, going after individual abusive actors and doing so in an impartial way uh, against agents of friends or foes uh, is an important measure of accountability. Mm -hmm. And um, Sarah, I want you to also talk about the role of media when it comes to conflicts like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the region. As you said, sometimes even the media coverage of that conflict has so many red lines when it comes to both the American media and also the international media. And as a um, result of that, even media uh, organizations in the region. Talk about how, media, how you see 
the coverage of these different conflicts and not just the Israeli-Palestinian one, but uh, the different conflicts and regions in the region um, when it comes to um, the basically the role that the media can play and also the form of the coverage that we see. Um, well, in connection with Israel-Palestine, uh, there are absolutely red lines um, because the media comes under such close scrutiny, particularly by uh, pro-Israel groups whose goal it is to silence media coverage, uh, silence balanced media coverage, uh, or to talk about Israel-Palestine in a very narrow and limited way um, that uh, the four corners of which are about Israeli security, uh, Israel's right to exist, uh, bringing in the Holocaust, labeling critics of Israel as anti-Semites, you know, very, very narrow parameters of space uh, to cover what's going on. Um, and that is why mainstream media is very, very cautious and very careful uh, about what they say about Israel and how much they say and how much they report. Um, the other piece of it is the physical absence of American journalists, in particular, from Gaza and the West Bank. So you will have international media establishments, uh, even like the New York Times, the Washington Post, when they have correspondents, uh, they are based inside Israel. Uh, they are not uh, present in Gaza. They are not present on a day-to-day -day basis, living their lives, sending their children to school the way they are present uh, in Israel, sending their children to school, uh, living their basic lives. So there is a lack of mainstream international media presence on the ground uh, to be part of the fabric of life, uh, to understand from the perspective of those who are living under occupation what that means on a day-to-day -day basis. So some of it remains uh, an active blindness uh, to what the experience of occupation means uh, for Palestinians. Um, and of course, this is something that Israel is only too happy to see. And that's why it makes it so very difficult for journalists to get access uh, to Gaza. Uh, and now, of course, increasingly even to the West Bank. Uh, getting access to the West Bank is becoming increasingly difficult. And we can expect uh, to see that increase, not decrease. Um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, uh, very uh, uh, clear that media establishments that do speak out uh, will hear complaints. So, for example, MSNBC, which has uh, two prominent uh, uh, broadcasters, uh, uh, Mehdi Hassan and Ayman Mohyeddin, who have been doing an incredible job bringing real facts, real perspectives to their coverage of Israel-Palestine, uh, have been facing a lot of criticism and a lot of pressure. Uh, I hope they maintain their coverage. Uh, I hope they keep these journalists on the air. Um, but there is a power dynamic where uh, they will hear from the very top, at the very top corporate levels, complaints uh, from uh, uh, you know, powerful investors uh, who do not want to see this kind of coverage. Mm -hmm. And let me also say, as someone who has similar experience in the media, it even extends to journalists' online presence. So it's not just the kind of covers that you put on air, but the kind of commentary and views and analysis that you will be sharing uh, about this conflict on social media. Um, now, Sarah, I want to also ask you about your current work. You are leading this organization called Democracy for the Arab World Now. Um, talk about how it started, the connection to Jamal Khashoggi and what the organization is doing. 
Sure. So uh, Jamal Khashoggi founded Democracy for the Arab World Now. Um, and uh, this was in 2018, just a few months before he was murdered by Saudi Arabia. Um, of course, um, uh, one of the reasons why the Saudi government murdered him was because they knew he had founded this organization and that it would seek to have a prominent voice uh, in Washington in particular about U.S. policy uh, towards abusive governments in the region. Um, I took over the organization just a year ago on April 1, uh, 2020, um, as its first executive director since Jamal's murder. And uh, our focus is twofold. Um, we are very closely monitoring human rights developments uh, in uh, uh, particular countries in the region, those that are most closely aligned with the United States. And so uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, and UAE are our primary focuses, but we hope to expand that to include other governments closely tied to the United States. Uh, and the reason we focus on these governments is because that's where we believe uh, both strategically and ethically we have a responsibility. Strategically, uh, because that's where we believe we can have the most influence given our government's close relationship with these governments. Uh, and ethically, it's where we have the most responsibility because our government is complicit in the abuses of these governments. Uh, we are very focused uh, on developing a platform that will become an institutional home uh, for political exiles from the Middle East, for democracy exiles from the Middle East. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have been forced to leave their homes uh, because of the democratic uprisings uh, in the region that started 10 years ago but are still continuing today. Uh, and we are very focused on uh, uh, changing the narrative about the Middle East among the foreign policy community of the region uh, that focuses on the region, uh, particularly in Washington, uh, and uh, forcing U.S. policy to change um, because it's uh, unlawful and it's unethical. And um, speaking specifically of Saudi Arabia and also an extension, the UAE, this administration, the new the Biden administration had been talking about changing relations. There was a lot of expectation for a transformation in U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. And we saw some of that happen with the new administration stopping arms sales to the UAE and the Saudi Arabia and pulling support for the war in Yemen. But it, do you think that's enough as far as changing U.S. policy with these countries in the Persian Gulf region? And how far do you think the United States and this administration should go? Um, well, clearly it's not enough. And, and uh, certainly there's been a recalibration. There's been a cooling of relations uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia in particular. Uh, but I don't think there's been real, any real change in terms of uh, the Biden administration's relationship with the UAE, for example, where they just approved a massive arms deal. Uh, of offensive weapons uh, to the UAE, uh, despite its nefarious, malign uh, uh, interventions in Yemen, in Libya, in Somalia, uh, in uh, Eritrea and Tigray. Um, and so that has been very disappointing. Even with Saudi Arabia, where President Biden promised uh, to end U.S. military sales to Saudi Arabia, it actually didn't do it. It gave us a little semantic game to say that it's cutting off 
offensive uh, weapons sales uh, to Saudi Arabia, but refusing to tell us just what exactly constitutes offensive weapons versus defensive weapons, particularly if you keep in mind that Saudi Arabia's justification uh, to go to war in Yemen was for defensive ends. And so theoretically, one could argue that all those weapons are defensive weapons. Uh, Congressman Rohana has asked the administration to answer this question, and they have not yet done so. Uh, it's very difficult uh, for uh, the Biden administration, it seems, uh, to develop the backbone uh, to take on uh, these governments that are causing so much harm and chaos in the region uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, they are inherently and intimately tied to uh, the lobbyists that control so much of America's foreign policy. Uh, the defense lobbies, uh, which, uh, of course, profit uh, handsomely, richly, uh, by the murder of Yemeni children and the murder of Palestinian children. Uh, arms transfers to the governments in the region that are using these weapons is very, very profitable for American defense companies. And they spend a good portion of their profits making sure the U.S. government and the Biden administration keeps that gravy train flowing. Um, they are also very much dominated by the foreign government lobbies, which are now united, which are now operating jointly. So the lobbies of Israel, the lobbies of the UAE, the lobbies of Saudi Arabia, the lobbies of Egypt, uh, are by far collectively the biggest spenders in Washington as foreign lobbying organizations uh, play a big role in shaping the Biden administration and American Congress's uh, uh, policies on the Middle East. The problem is there's no counter lobby. Uh, uh, Americans are too disconnected from foreign policy to be invested in fighting these lobbies. What happens in Yemen is too remote for the average American to really understand how U.S. military support to these governments uh, leads to uh, uh, the bombardment of, of Yemeni school children. That's the role of advocacy organizations like Don's. Um, but of course, we are far, far, far outspent uh, by the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that these government lobbies spend. And now taking on uh, Saudi Arabia means taking on Israel and taking on uh, uh, the UAE, taking on Bahrain, taking on Egypt, because their lobbies are acting in unison. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, talking about um, human rights across the region, I know you worked on this issue with staff in multiple countries overseeing over a dozen countries across the region. We know there are many activists, um, civil society organizations working in different countries on women's rights, LGBTQ, minorities. Talk about some of the um, areas or some of the cases where or countries where you see hope for some of these movements um, to um, help basically improve the overall situation of human rights across the region? Well, I guess I, I, I fundamentally and, and earnestly and or perhaps almost metaphysically have hope for all of the region um, because I do believe that there is an inherent human instinct uh, to revolt against injustice. And I know that every generation of the Middle East and North Africa will continue to rise up against oppression. You know, you see it from a five-year-old or a three-year-old child. Uh, if you harm it, if you hurt it, if it sees injustice, it fights back, it screams, it yells. It's a basic human instinct that even very young children have ingrained in them. Um, and so I have hope uh, that the region will always be a font of resistance to oppression. 
Um, where obviously we all have the most hope uh, is Tunisia, uh, because they successfully managed a democratic transition in that country. And while they're still struggling mightily uh, to maintain their democracy, uh, they have managed to keep it going for 10 years. And I think they have had the gift of being a poor country, uh, the gift of not having a foreign meddlers trying to uh, uh, interfere uh, and disrupt their transition to democracy, like we saw uh, in Egypt, of course, and like we've seen in other countries in the region. Um, but clearly the, the, the youth of Iraq, the youth of Algeria, the youth of Sudan, they are all reason to have hope. And just, week, the, just this week, the youth of Palestine have given us hope um, because they have resisted uh, the, the, the evictions of average ordinary Palestinian families who are being told to get out and, and give up their houses simply because they're not Jews. Um, the fact that the youth of Palestine have protested all across Israel and the West Bank, now we're seeing protests emerging in Lebanon, in Jordan, uh, even in Bahrain, uh, despite the authoritarian control the people are under. These were all signals of hope, and this is what we have to stand behind as civil society. We have to support the protesters demanding the same things we want here in the United States, justice and equality. We want our dignity, and so do they. Okay, well, on that note, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me, Negar. That was Sarah Lee Whitson, the executive director of Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And you can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.